Africa rise and shine Africa tsoka Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine this is Channel Africa the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Jalani Tulo, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, mobile money transfers are increasingly boosting East Africa's integration process. An inquest into a fatal crash involving South Africa's president's son continues later this morning and Tanzania uses social networks to offer maternal, newborn and child health content to expecting mothers. In economic special court for income tax appeals reserves judgment on Zimbabwe platinum holdings and in sports news, Bafana Bafana coach wary of, Zimb- of Sudan. But first up the news with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Burkina Faso's army-appointed leader has promised to give power back to a civilian government. The leader has, however, not given a specific date for the transfer of power despite intense international pressure. Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Zida made the vow yesterday in a meeting with the country's Moganaba, the king of Burkina Faso's Morsi people. The meeting was one Zida and other military officers were holding with local leaders and envoys from abroad following the army's power grab on Saturday after a popular uprising toppled President Blaise Kampaure. Meanwhile, United Nations Secretary-General has called for an inclusive civilian-led transition leading to full constitutional order in Burkina Faso. Ban Ki-moon has been following the situation in the West African country since long-serving President Blaise Kampaure resigned last Friday and fled to the country in the face of popular uprisings. Protests have continued in the capital Ouagadougou after the military seized power in the country. Farhan Haq is Deputy Spokesperson for the UN Secretary-General. The Secretary-General continues to be greatly concerned about the current crisis in Burkina Faso and its impact on national and regional stability. The Secretary-General reiterates his call for an inclusive, civilian-led transition leading to full restoration of constitutional order through democratic elections. Suspected Boko Haram gunmen have launched a series of attacks in Nigeria's rest of northeast. According to witnesses, the gunmen opened fire on troops in one town before raiding a French-owned factory. The violence in Gombe State yesterday began with a gunfight at the military checkpoint on the outskirts of Nafada town. Multiple residents say the attackers set fire to a police station, robbed a bank and raised a political party office. Staff at the Ashaka plant say French nationals were on site at the time of the raid but there was no firm evidence about their condition. There has been no official comment from the security forces and officials in Gombe. Botswana's president, Ian Khama, wants his vice president elected by a show of hands. Opposition parties say this move would undermine the powers of parliament. Khama's lawyers approached the attorney general last week to petition the court to change the voting process from a secret ballot to a show of hands. Presidential spokesperson Jeff Ramsey says the attorney general, who is appointed by the president, was only clarifying the process of selection. Khama and the ruling Botswana Democratic Party were re-elected in last month's general election. 
Commission. Botswana's High Court will decide this week whether a show of hands is constitutional. In the meantime, Parliament cannot carry out most of its duties. A group of aid agencies says thousands of people in Sierra Leone are being forced to violate, to violate Ebola quarantines to find food because deliveries are not reaching them. The government, with help from the World Food Programme, is tasked with delivering food and other services to those people. However, the Christian aid in Sierra Leone says there are many parts in the country that are being missed. Agencies that belong to the Disaster Emergency Committee umbrella organization are trying to fill the gaps. The quarantines were put in place in order to prevent the spread of Ebola. Large parts of the West African country have been sealed off and within those areas many people are being ordered to stay in their homes. To date, more than 5,000 people have died from the virus. And finally, security has been stepped up at refugee camps in Kakuma in northwest Kenya following the death of eight refugees over the past week from Burundi, DRC and South Sudan. Disturbances began last Tuesday after reports of the attempted rape of a refugee girl which sparked violence among rival groups of South Sudanese youths. Further violence erupted at the weekend. Yesterday, four more refugees were killed. United Nations refugees Refugee Agency spokesperson Adrian Edwards says agencies involved in the camps are desperately trying to bring the conflict to an end. Together with the Kenyan authorities, we are continuing to work with the refugees to restore calm and appealing for calm and peaceful coexistence among all communities in the camp. Kakuma is a melting pot with close to 180,000 refugees from more than 20 countries living in four sectors. The biggest population is from South Sudan, others also large from Somalia, Sudan and Democratic Republic of the Congo. For Channel Africa, I'm Chwalani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Shalani. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Mobile money transfers are increasingly boosting East Africa's integration process. After the East African community, the region's economic bloc opened up borders. Business has boomed and increased the demand for fast, affordable and secure financial transfer services. Mobile service providers are now scrambling for this newfound regional market. From Kigali, Silvanas Karamera reports. This is a mobile money transfer service center in Kigali. Here, people are using mobile service networks to send money. In Rwanda, like other countries in East Africa, this has become the most common and secure means for people to receive remittances directly to their mobile phones. For a company like MTN Rwanda, over $20 million worth of transactions were registered in 2013. Mobile service providers in East Africa, such as Airtel and Tanzania's Tigo, have identified the booming demand and are now scaling up their services to cross-border money transfers. East African residents like Esther Wanjiku, a Kenyan dealing in hair products in Kigali, said that she uses Kenya's popular M-Pesa mobile money transfer service. I live in Rwanda, but I am a Kenyan. I buy my products in Kenya and bring them to Rwanda because I have clients here. So when I want the products, I send the money to Kenya. The products are bought, then they are transported here. 
I don't have to go there. I send the money through M-Pesa or any other network. It saves time, money. So I think it's good. So for me, Although this service benefits many, some are reluctant to use them, fearing the cost incurred, which include forex charges. Jambo Skona Wizera is a Rwandan who sells Kenyan made sandals in Kigali. We don't use mobile money transfer services a lot because they are expensive. For $1,000, you are charged around $70. Unless you have someone who is using a similar network but not sending to a Kenyan or Ugandan who wants the money in dollars. Because if you send the money in Rwandan francs and they change into dollars, you are definitely incurring losses. The East African community, East Africa's economic bloc, has been championing integration across the region. Mobile service providers are said to be banking on the policies that have been put in place by the partner states of Rwanda, Kenya, Burundi, Tanzania and Uganda, such as the establishment of a common market and the customs union. As a result, all the five partner states have registered a sharp increase of cross-border business. Small-scale businesses are also said to be reaping big as a result. According to Alan Murphy, the head of the mobile finance services at Chitigo Rwanda, which launched a cross-border money transfer services, between Rwanda and Tanzania eight months ago. The service is helping small-scale businesses in the sense that, one, the service is quite a free service, and you know for most, for most of the small-scale uh, businesses, um, they like the element of whereby the, they would want to reduce their costs, and the money transfer is one of the biggest costs, especially for those ones who are transacting across the borders. And so for the business, the small-scale businesses, then they're able to cut costs on transferring money to their either their, uh, their, their suppliers or to their other business partners on the others across the border. The mobile service providers may be competing to claim as many subscribers as possible, but according to Kabera Sriro, a consultant on East African Community Affairs, what may easily be overlooked is that such services are actually promoting regional integration. The cross-border mobile money transfer is one of the, the, the things that are going to be benefiting East Africans, especially when we are, uh, the five countries are trying to come up with the, the single currency in the region. The challenges we have been facing, especially the traders, you find that you go to Kampala to shop some stuff, and when you get to Kampala, you have to change some money. When you go to Nairobi, it's the same thing, and the, the rates are high. You find that people have been losing. The service providers like Rwanda's MTN, are also contemplating on the launch of cross-border money transfers in a partnership with its sister company MTN Uganda. Although it has the largest number of subscribers, other companies that have opened cross-border transfers are giving them a run for their money. But Airtel has been cleared by central banks of Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania to begin regional money transfer services. Silvanus Kalemera, Channel Africa News, Kigali. South Africa's National Economic Development and Labor Council NEDLEX representatives at the Presidential Labor Relations Indaba have reached an in-principle agreement on a national minimum wage. 
The country's deputy president, Sil Ramaphosa, who presided over the conference, said a task team made up of representatives of business, government, labor and the community will work out a framework for a final agreement by July next year. The central issue to be tackled is the model of a national minimum wage for South Africa. Frank Ngomalo has more. Kosato General Secretary Zuelinze Mavavi said the in-principle agreement on a national minimum wage represented a game-changer in the history of labor relations in South Africa. Mavavi said there was a set of at least 15 uncomfortable conversations or hard questions that had to be confronted on the journey to a national minimum wage. Top of this was the relationship between a national minimum wage, collective bargaining agreements and the fight for a living wage. Secondly, we are going to ask and to answer a question. What is the current wage structure in South Africa labor market and how will a national minimum wage assist in transforming this, particularly the plight of the working poor and combating inequalities? We will also ask a question and seek to answer it. What should be the relationship of a national minimum wage to existing sectoral determinations that exist for all the vulnerable workers. We will ask a question, couldn't we use or should we not use the propositions or the provisions of the Basic Conditions of Employment Act Section 58-8 to introduce a new sectoral determination to cover unprotected workers instead of introducing one national minimum wage? We will have to give answers to that question as well. Parties would also have to answer the questions of whether it was not too complicated and cumbersome to introduce a national minimum wage that might necessitate the scrapping of existing labor laws. Would the national minimum wage apply to everyone or would there be exemptions? Would all regions and sectors be covered by the national minimum wage? Again, that's a very, very involved question that requires answers. What level should be the national minimum wage be pitched? What do we mean by two benchmarks, i.e. the minimum living level and the ratio of the national minimum wage to the average wage? There are about 15 sets of those questions, which definitely now go to the, to the process that the Deputy President have outlined we will be engaged with that. Labor have uh, some serious uh, inputs to make already in relation to what should be the answers to those questions. But of course, this is going to be a process that uh, must be inclusive, must engage business and, and all of its concerns, must engage communities, must engage uh, the, the business so that we can find a comprehensive answer. Black Business Council Vice President Sandy Lezung affirmed the business commitment to a national minimum wage but emphasized that the central issue will remain the modality of achieving that goal. For example, uh, are there possible exclusions? Are there possible exceptions uh, that, for example, apply to small and medium enterprises? Um, are there any specific um, interests um, groups like youth uh, who may need to be catered for in the broader provision of the national minimum wage. These are modalities issues. Um, as business, we've got certain views, and we've got no doubt that in the next couple of months 
will ultimately find each other with our other social partners. Another prominent business representative and chairman of Anglo called Ashante Sipopichana said a minimum wage makes sense and should be supported by all Nedla constituencies. Evidence suggests that um, uh, one of the conditions for growth of economies is to deal with the serious problems of inequalities and wage inequalities is one of them. Um, But the good thing about the agreement that we have here today is that there's a recognition of the delicate balance between ensuring that uh, in, in, in asserting a set of minimum standards we do not do anything that will hamper growth and that will undermine employment. So clearly there would be a very uh, systematic process of investigation prior to any agreement on, uh, on, 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 on minimum wage. Uh, I agree with uh, the general sector of COSATU that uh, we raised those issues and others in respect of modalities. Uh, are we going to have a minimum wage with variations for different regions, for different sectors, for different categories of people, all of those things would be guided by a concern to ensure that we, we don't have a minimum wage system that has job displacement effects. And that was Anglo Gold Ashanti Chairman ending that report by Frank Ngumalo. The inquest hearing into a fatal crash involving South Africa's President Jacob Zuma's son will continue in the Randburg Magistrates Court in Johannesburg this morning. Duduzani Zuma's Porsche collided with a minibus taxi on the M1 highway near Santin in February this year. One person was killed in the crash and two others were critically injured. Yesterday, the two versions from Zuma and taxi driver Vusi Lamini were disputed by the state's key witness. Noma Bolani reports. Through statements submitted to the police, the Randburg Magistrate Court heard different versions of what happened that night to Duzani Zuma's Porsche collided with Vusi Lamini's taxi. According to the president's son, the rain was pouring down, making it difficult to see the road ahead. He submitted in a statement that he hit a big water puddle before losing control of his car, then collided with the minibus taxi. His car spun before coming to a halt in the opposite direction. Zuma also said that he saw that people were injured and that he called his friend to call emergency officials. Lamini's version told the court that Zuma's silver Porsche had crossed the four-lane highway from the fast lane to the slow before it rear-ended his taxi. The vehicle apparently spun and rolled before coming to a halt on its wheels. Lamini maintained that he'd been driving at the legal speed of 100 kilometers per hour. These two versions were disputed by the state's key witness. 68-year-old Matron Dagane was the only passenger who says she saw the Porsche before the accident. She testified that Zuma had been speeding in the fast lane before losing control and plowing into the minibus taxi. Dagane even said, though it was raining, there was enough illumination to see at least five meters ahead of her. She added that the accident could have been avoided if Zuma had not been speeding and therefore placed the blame on him. She also disputed Lamini's claim that the taxi rolled. Earlier, the court heard of the gruesome injuries of Pumzili Dube, the passenger who died at the scene. 
All her ribs had been fractured and most of her internal organs ruptured, causing massive bleeding. Statements from other passengers read out where it was revealed that Zuma had tried to help some of the injured passengers. One of them told police that he had asked the driver what happened and Lamini replied that he lost control because of water on the road. The hearing will continue this morning with the state calling the first officer to respond to the scene. Nomopolani, Johannesburg. The Western Cape High Court in South Africa has heard that British businessman Shen Devani's denial of being involved in the hijacking and murder of his wife Annie is a matter between him and his God. Taxi driver Zola Tongo made the statement under cross-examination yesterday. It was his sixth day on the witness stand testifying against Devani. Berenice Moss reports. The truth will come out one day. These were Zola Tongo's words as Defence Counsel Francois Fancel continued highlighting various discrepancies between his police statement in November 2010 and his evidence in court. Fancel asked Tongo what he and Devani discussed telephonically on the evening of Annie Devani's murder while the couple had dinner at Surfside Restaurant in Strand. Tongo maintains Devani wanted to know why the first hijacking attempt failed and insisted that the job should be done that night. When Fansale said his client would deny this, Tongo replied that Devani's denial is between him and his God. In the dock, Devani, who listened intently, shook his head in disagreement. He also makes notes throughout the proceedings and often gestures when he does not agree with Tongo's testimony. Fansail yesterday showed the court CCTV footage of calls between middleman Monde Mbulombo, hijacker Mziwa Madoda Kwabe and Tongo to suggest that the middleman had a bigger role in that evening's events and that his client was removed from the plot. Tongo denied that he intentionally underplayed Mbulombo's involvement, insisting that he was only the link between Kwabe and himself. He also denied having any knowledge of how much money Mbolombo would receive for his assistance. Mbolombo, a Section 204 witness in the trial of Chigaman Kholile Mgeni, was indemnified from prosecution in that trial two years ago. Fansel also played the court a telephonic conversation between Mbolombo and Tongo, during which there is made mention of five men involved in the plot. Tonga is adamant that the fifth man is Shrian Devani. In his testimony, Tonga told the court that he was seated at the back with Shrian and Annie Devani, but in his police statement, he said he was pushed over to the front passenger seat by his accomplices during the hijacking. He also said in his statement that he gave the police the incorrect registration number for his vehicle, but has now denied doing this. Proceedings will resume a bit later today due to a memorial service for the late Judge Hannes Fagan. Tongo, one of the state's key witnesses, is expected back on the stand. I'm Berenice Moss in Cape Town. It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's Transport Minister Dipur Peters says the electronic tolling system on Gauteng Roads has been in the pipeline as early as 1996. 
Peters says it was the Gauteng provincial government which initiated the project. Roads agency Sanwell, together with the Transport and Treasury Department, are making presentations before the eToll advisory panel until Thursday. The panel was established by Gauteng Premier David Makura to assess the socio-economic impact of eTolls in the Gauteng province. Pumzilem Langeni reports. After submissions from various organizations opposing the controversial e-tolling system, the Transport Department is now presenting its reasons for implementing the e-tolling system on Gauteng's freeways. While e-tolls only went live in 2012, Transport Minister Dipuo Peters says they were not Sandal's brainchild, but were in fact the project initiated by the province in 1996, two years before the establishment of Sandal. She's told the panel she hopes the truth will be revealed after the presentations. So much has been said about this project, and in the narrative, there have been truth, half-truth, and plain lies. We are hoping that our engagement with the panel over the next three days will affirm the truth, complete the half-truth, and jettison the lies. I have with me here a team from the Department of Transport. I have directed that their presentations should, in the spirit of openness, be made available to the public through various forms of media so that South Africans can hear directly from us and appreciate the complexity of the issues we are dealing with. Peters is also against the notion that e-tolls affect the poor. She says the fact that public transport has been exempted is proof enough that the poor are not affected. Allow me to again reiterate that no registered public transport vehicle is expected to pay for the e-tolling tariff. They are exempted because government believes users of public transport are in the main people in the low income bracket. Therefore, government wishes to allay fears that the e-toll system will affect or has affected the poor. She also ravaged suggestions that there were policy differences between the ANC in Gauteng and the national office. The ANC structures in Gauteng have publicly opposed the system. And I'm happy to indicate, I heard the Premier. The Premier said, whilst they are looking at the socio-economic impact of this AGFIP, uh, the people should continue paying because the debt is there. And you cannot say, Chairperson, that because you have not arrived at the point where you know what to do with the debt, you are not going to pay. Then we are going to have serious challenges for the central ratings. The department says the improvement of Harding's freeways has also seen a reduction of accidents on the roads. The Treasury Department will on Thursday make presentations on why the direct user payee was the most viable method. Ampumzilim Langeni in Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Two journalists working for independent television stations in the self-declared independent state of Puntland have been remanded in custody, pending hearings this coming Sunday on charges of false accusation and defamation. James Shmanula reports. The journalists Mukhtano Ibrahim and Mohammed Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud are expected to appear in court in Gabilay, northwestern Somaliland, on Sunday, the 9th of this month. According to Gabilay Regional Prosecutor Yusuf Behi, the two journalists 
are charged with the defamation, false accusation, and defacing the country's national flag. Already, the East African representative of the Committee to Protect Journalists, Tom Rhodes, has appealed to Somaliland authorities to drop the charges against the journalists and, as he put it, and I quote, stop trying to intimidate independent journalists into silence. To get a clear picture of whether or not there is freedom of press in Somaliland, I found Abdi Wahab Abdi Samad an expert on the Horn of Africa. Speaking to me from the Somali capital Mogadishu, Abdi Wahab said, for many years, Somaliland journalists have been harassed and arrested illegally. It's not the first time. So Somaliland government, they start suppressing the journalists, the journalists, all the journalists, including the, both big media and the electronic media. So it's now an ability. They are going to suppress, suppress the, the, the media. They are going to silence the media so that media can always propagate anything, you know, anything with government issues, anything the government is allowed to do so. Any sensitive issues which talk about the Somaliland is highly prohibited. We will face the first fall of the law. Abdi Wahab Abdi Samad said the censorship of news is a common feature in Somaliland. The government must censure any media house. There is no freedom of expression address. Even demonstrations? Uh, even including the demonstration, if it's against the only call the government of the day, so the government cannot live for that. The, the government is only allowed anything which is not harming the national unit. Somaliland, you being a Somali yourself, can you describe Somaliland as a failed state or police state? It's a failed state, no question about that. There's a civil obedience within the Somaliland. There is no government. To be honest, the government is still very loose. That was... Abdi Wahab Abdi Samad, an expert on the Horn of Africa. Somaliland journalists have told the Committee to Protect Journalists that the country's independent media has come under pressure from the authorities as Somaliland prepares for presidential and parliamentary elections in June next year. As has been said at the beginning, Somaliland is a self-declared independent state. It has been so for more than 20 years, but Abdi Mohamed Ahmed, the spokesman for the Somaliland government, denies this. We are not operating independently. We are part of the Somali government. We recognize it by the Somali government so that it, it is in the central of Somalia. It is autonomous body state, but it is definitely, according to the constitution of Galmudu, it is a part of the Somali government. That was Abdi Mohamed Ahmed, spokesman for the Somaliland government. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Our headlines up next with Jalani Tulo. Thank you, Lulu. Making headlines, Burkina Faso's army-appointed leader, Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Zida, promises to give power back to a civilian government. Botswana's President Ian Khama wants his vice president elected by a show of hands, but opposition parties are against it. And finally, progress has been made in controlling the Ebola outbreak in Liberia, but vigilance is still needed as the country continues to deal with the health crisis caused by the disease. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Thank you, Jalani. South African President Jacob Zuma says the forced resignation of Burkina Faso's President Blaise Kampware is a clear sign that the days of dictatorships and military coups in Africa are over. Kampare was forced to resign last week in the wake of violent protests over his attempts to extend his 27-year rule. The African Union has named Togo's former Prime Minister Edem Kojo as Special Envoy to Burkina Faso to facilitate the establishment of a civilian-led transitional government. President Zuma has held private talks with his Burundian counterpart, Pierre Gurunziza, who is on a state visit to South Africa. Tsepo Ikaneng filed this report. Political tension is increasing in Burkina Faso's capital, Ouagadougou. Pro-democracy protesters have rejected the military takeover in the small West African state. The leadership vacuum ignited fears that the country could slide into a bloody conflict between civilians and the military. President Zuma described political developments in Burkina Faso as a sign that disgruntled citizens are determined to use popular uprisings to expose and end abuse of state power. There is a need to align the thinking of the leaders as well as the people who participate in electing leaders. What has happened in Burkina Faso is that there seems to be no alignment between the thinking of the leader and the people. And that's what has caused the problem. I think, therefore, that is a lesson that Africa should accept that the time for democracy has arrived. Uh, certainly, we need to accept that people want to see democracy. Those who are in charge must be elected. Meanwhile, visiting Burundian President Pierre Nkuruziza has thanked Pretoria for its role in ending the political conflict that ravaged his country in the late 90s. President Zuma played a key role facilitating peace talks between 2000 and 2005. The protracted talks ended the conflict, ushering in a new government. Nguruziza has reiterated his government's commitment to elevate diplomatic and trade ties with South Africa. This state visit is very important. It's to show to our brothers and sisters in South Africa that we want to show them that it's high time to reap together the dividends of peace. We want to build a sustainable development and a cooperation between Burundi and South Africa. To have peace and security is one thing. To sustain peace and security, we need development. We must recognize that Burundi is a post-conflict country. The poverty is there, so now we want to develop our country, social and economic sectors, so the people can see the dividends of peace. South Africa and Burundi have stepped up efforts to revitalize trade and investment ties with an economic cooperation agreement signed today. Pretoria has been criticized for investing heavily in the Burundian peace process, but then allowing bilateral relations to lapse. Bilateral trade between our two countries has been slowly increasing from 47.7 million rand in 2007 to just over 52 million rand in 2013. The business people from both countries should certainly improve these figures by further exploring opportunities in the two countries. The South African business community stands ready to enter into partnerships with their Burundi counterparts. 
President Nkuruziza has also confirmed that his government has endorsed a request by the African Union to send a battalion of troops to help with peacekeeping in South Sudan. Tsepo Ikaning in Parliament. It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, and more than 20 celebrities and world opinion leaders yesterday published an open letter calling for an end to statelessness. The UN first agreed to protect people without national identity 60 years ago. However, statelessness remains a devastating legal limbo for millions of people worldwide who lack recognition and the human rights protection that go with it. For more on this issue, here's UNHCR spokesperson Tina Gelly. Stateless people are people who don't have a nationality of any country, and therefore they don't have the rights and benefits that a nationality offers. It means having no legal identity, so they would have no passport, no vote, no health care, no schooling, and maybe not even a death certificate. Now, how do you become a stateless person? I mean, you must be born somewhere, somehow. Uh, Just an example for our listeners who don't really understand what not having a passport of a certain country or not belonging to any state means. Yeah, I mean, it mainly happens due to nationality laws. For example, there are many refugees in the world, and as a result, many children are born in exile. And if they're not issued a birth certificate when they're born in the host country, it can lead to statelessness problems later. Now let's get into it, Tina. How much of a problem is statelessness around the world? Well, our estimate is that there are at least 10 million people worldwide who are stateless, and there are actually stateless people in every region of the world. No region is exempt from this issue. And uh, what kind of issues and challenges do these uh, people face, uh, especially because they don't have a national identity? Okay, well, um, situations of statelessness vary considerably. Mm -hmm. However, most stateless people have limited enjoyment of basic human rights. Like I mentioned before, it's difficult for them to access education, health care, employment, birth registration, and identity documentation. And they're often unable to do basic things like buy or sell property, open a bank account, or even get married. One stateless couple told UNHCR that they had decided not to start a family because they could not face cursing their children with the same deprivation and despair of statelessness. And um, our High Commissioner, Antonio Guterres, uh, actually said, statelessness makes people feel like their very existence is a crime. Now, I want us to move on to looking at uh, this uh, campaign, the Now I Belong campaign. Uh, Elaborate more on the goal of eradicating statelessness. Yeah, well, we know it's an ambitious goal, and while it may be impossible to resolve every case, we have seen that when states show the political will to act, they can actually make huge strides in resolving statelessness. You know, as I mentioned, many groups are stateless because they face discrimination in society, but we've found that when there is political will, these obstacles can be overcome. Mm. And many of the steps required cost very little, such as reforming a nationality law or changing documentation procedures. Now, the campaign is also supported by world celebrities such as the likes of Angela, uh, Angelina rather, Jolie. What does this uh, uh, speak for the rest of the world, seeing such figures being part of such a campaign? 
Yeah, I think that uh, human rights defenders and uh, people want to ensure that all citizens of the world have access to basic human rights. And, we're, and then we're recognizing that statelessness is a main problem. In addition to our special envoy, Angelina Jolie, we also have support from South African struggle hero Ahmed Kathrada, from advocate George Bezos, and even Hugh Masekela, and of course uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. When these well-known human rights activists together call for a change, it can hopefully mobilize the citizens of the world to request their own governments to step up. And so I guess anyone interested in, in learning more or supporting the campaign can go to the website ibelong.unhcr.org and sign up. Let's uh, elaborate on this element on what needs to happen from now on after this particular campaign. What are we going to see happening? Yeah, well, we're hoping with the launch of the campaign, we're trying to get 10 million people around the world to sign on to the petition. And because of that, governments will recognize that they need to step up and make the change that need to be made so that we can ensure that uh, the individual instances of statelessness can be solved and that will basically eradicate statelessness around the world. And that was Tina Gurley, spokesperson for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees on the line from Pretoria, talking to Benjamin Mushatama. The South African Football Association, SAFA, working together with Gun Free South Africa and the Commission for Gender Equality, has appointed a legal heavyweight, Norman Aronser, to head a, com- a campaign of curbing the unlawful possession of guns. The successful collection of guns will culminate in the building of a statue in honor of Alanda Pirates and Bafana Bafana captain Senzo Meiwa. He was shot and killed at a house in Fosloros last month in what is believed to be a robbery that went horribly wrong. Temba Shiva reports. The committee consisting of advocate George Bezos and soccer legend Jomosono, among others, is planning to march to Parliament to urge the government to strengthen the gun laws following the senseless killing of Meiwa. Bezos says the campaign is not only about an individual, it's also about the 17 other people who died on the day Senzo was killed. It usually takes a tragedy for people, the country, to sit back and say something has to be done as a matter of urgency. It is not only the one death that we are concerned about. We are concerned about the 17 deaths that occurred on the Sunday in which the wonderful goalkeeper was killed. The committee believes that there's still many people who are in possession of guns which were unlawfully acquired. Adele Kerstin from Guns Free Society believes that granting unconditional amnesty is the only way to win the confidence of the participants in this campaign. Kerstin says their duty is to convince the public to come forward and that will mean that no identity documents or fingerprints will be required when they come to declare. We would also suggest that one of the most effective ways and in fact happened in Brazil but also in the 1994 amnesty is that when the person hands in their gun, the gun is destroyed at the point of handing. So that there's no possibility or opportunity for that gun to go back out the back door uh, and into circulation. SAFA President Denis Jordan says the plan is to have the guns melted to erect a statue in honor of Meiwa 
at its headquarters in Nazrek. So we need many, many guns to melt them and to build a statue because the message that we want to send, that instrument that was used to destroy the life of Senzo, we will take that and melt it and now the guns will glorify, will honor Senzo. Safa had invited Senzo's father, Sam Meiwa and River Steenkamp's parents to the launch, but none of them attended because of their prior commitments. I'm Temba Shiba in Johannesburg. Ombudsmen from different parts of the continent are meeting in Ethiopia to discuss, among other issues, how they can play a role in reducing the conflicts on the continent. The legal experts say that it is time that their functions extended beyond just representing citizens in their countries, but also extended to continental service. Koleta Wanjohi reports. An ombudsman is an official, usually but not always appointed by the government or by parliament, who is charged with representing the interests of the public by investigating and addressing complaints reported by individual citizens. The office of the ombudsman serves as an appropriate institution for dealing with complaints from the citizens. It has the mandate to conduct inquiries concerning instances of maladministration in the activities of the government. The existence of the office of the ombudsman in different countries in Africa reflects an affirmation of a commitment of assisting citizens who seek redress against maladministration to get some reasonable amount of solution. This sends a message to public officials in Africa on the need to treat citizens with fairness and impartiality. Ombudsmen from the African continent are now converging in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Their discussions over the next few days will be based on how their roles can extend to helping Africa as a continent. The president of Ethiopia, Mulatu Tashome, says that it is time that these legal experts extend their services to assist the continent solve the violent conflicts present. Conflict management is a process. It requires continuous fine-tuning which can establish the legitimacy of the system and prevent conflicts. Therefore, in Africa, conflicts could be managed by addressing the root causes of poverty and ensuring respect for human rights and democratic rights in the continent. Ombudsman institutions in Africa and African countries have a crucial role in building peace and security in individual countries and collectively at continental level as well. The meeting is also a chance for the Association of Ombudsmen in Africa, where 40 countries are members, to have liaison with the African Union on some key policy changes. The Executive Secretary of the African Ombudsman and Mediators Association, Tuli Mandosela, says that the progress made by the African Union to set policies like silencing the guns by the year 2020, the Charter to Respect Human Rights, are positive, but must be matched by high level of implementation from the African governments. Knowing fully that we do not always tell our continent's leaders what they want to hear. According to the International Ombudsman Institute, the IOI, to which most of us are members, our role is to speak truth to power. Though at the Public Protector South Africa, we prefer to call it whispering truth to power. The African Union's recognition of the value of telling the truth to government about wrongdoing in state affairs is encouraging. In any event, 
If we told lies about wrongdoing in state affairs, we would be betraying our continent's leaders and our people. This is the first bilateral meeting that the African Ombudsman are holding with the African Union. Kuletu Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It is 8.46 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoku. The Special Court for Income Tax Appeals has revised the judgment on tax cases of Zimbabwe Platinum Holdings Zimplat. The miner, which is 87% owned by South Africa-based Impala Platinum Holdings, is challenging the Zimbabwe Revenue Authority on an imposed additional profit tax bill and a penalty on income tax. Zimplat, Zimbabwe's largest platinum producer, is appealing against the $26.9 million apartment liability charged by Zimra. The case, which has been dragging for years, arose after the tax collector imposed an amended APT bill on Zimplatz, which objected on the basis that it was not liable to the tax in terms of an agreement entered into with the Zimbabwean government. The Confederation of Tanzania Industries is still pushing for the review of some duties and levies that were not addressed in the Finance Minister's general budget read last week. CTI says there are still outstanding issues that need to be addressed and they included excise duty, input duty and value-added tax. It says that the implementation of these measures will enhance the competitiveness of local manufacturing and value addition. In excise duty, manufacturers call for the reduction of excise duty on ready-made drink products to the same level with excise duty on beer. Introduction of excise duty of 50% above the current duty on imported finished goods with alcohol above 20%. South Africa's labor analysts say Trade Federation Kusatu is contravening its own constitution by denying trade union NUMSA the right to demand a special congress. They say this may further polarize the already divided Labor Federation. Kusatu is holding a central executive committee meeting on Friday to decide on NUMSA's fate. Labor analyst Terry Bell. According to clause 3.3.2, a special NEC has to be called a special national congress should at least one-third of the members, that would be 67 affiliates, call for one. NUMSA has read correctly the feeling on the ground among most of the rank-and-file trade unionists who are pretty brass off about the way things have been going. And they think that they could, if they had a special congress, unseat the present majority of the present executive. Mobile money transfers are increasingly boosting East Africa's integration process. After the East African community's economic bloc opened up borders, a business is booming and there is increased demand for fast, affordable and secure financial transfer services. Mobile service providers are now scrambling for this newly found regional market. Sylvanas Caramera reports. <laughs> This is a mobile money transfer service center in Kigali. Here, people are using mobile service networks to send money in Rwanda, like other countries in East Africa. This has become the most common and secure means for people to receive remittances directly to their mobile phones.
There is a high relief among South African motorists as the price of petrol dropped by 45 South African cents a litre from midnight. Diesel decreased by 60 cents a litre, while illuminating paraffin has gone down by 55 cents a litre. The energy department says the brand has been strengthening, while international oil prices have dropped substantially this month. Indicators, the sour on Channel Africa, we are the voice of the African Renaissance. The US dollar trades at 11.04 South African Rand, 9.06 Botswana Pula, 6.32 that's in Zambia, 0.62 in Britain, 0.79 to the Euro, gold $1.163, platinum $1.216 an ounce, brand crude $2.55 a barrel. Economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, this hour we're kicking off with football news. Bafana Bafana coach Ifram Sheikh Mashaba has announced his 26-man squad that will face Sudan and Nigeria for their last two fixtures of the 2015 African Cup of Nations qualifiers due to take place on the 15th and the 19th of November respectively. However, with Sudan rooted at the bottom of the lock, Mashaba is aware of the backlash. says Sudan is like a wounded lion and his team need not to be complacent as the East African team will come out with guns blazing. I doubt if they'll sit back. They've got nothing to lose. They're at the bottom of the lock. I mean, for them to go sit back, then they'll be like a sheep coming to slaughter, you know. They will give us problems. Again, it's going to be problems. And uh, what people are not aware of in most of the times is whether it's junior teams, whether it's women team, South Africa is a team to beat. We need to be aware of that. Everyone wants to beat South Africa. We're not going to go out there, whether they sit back or it. We've got to come up with a strategy. That's going to make it a point that we always put them under pressure, make them play with their backs against the wall. After the goalless draw against Congo in Pulukwane last month, Mashaba says Bafana Bafana could have easily booked their spot in the Morocco Afcon had they taken their chances. We've played uh, four games up to this far. And as a technical committee, we're happy, man. Scoring five goals in four games, it was a very good thing. But you're quite right. There's some evident lack of uh, finishing up that has come up. Yes, if you look at our beefing up, it occurred mainly in the striking force. That is what we're trying to do. Try and maybe kill it in the first half. Get the one or two goals. And all these guys, none of them will score less than three goals in the team. They are three, four and up. What we'll ask them, if we play two of them, Give us 1-1 and then we have 2. Then we win the game. And then to Olympic news, South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, Saskok, says the quota system is untenable and cannot work forever if the nation's sport is to be taken seriously. Saskok President Gideon Sem. Why it is it that we don't have school sport? If we don't address that, then the issue of transformation will be with us for the next 20, 30 years. We have agreed a sport through our Honorable Minister Fikile Mbalula that together with uh, Honorable Minister 
Mutter, that the issue of school sport must be addressed and must be addressed seriously. In the absence of that, honorable members, you will sit here for the next 30 years and you'll talk transformation. There is no way that this child on the other side of Kumbu is not exposed to sport on at least two days a week. How do you want to transform? That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Mobile money transfers are increasingly boosting East Africa's integration process. An inquest into a fatal crash involving South Africa's president's son continues later this morning and Tanzania uses social networks to offer maternal, newborn and child health content to expecting mothers. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Nomalizo Mandela, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Africa Unite by Bob Marley.
Nigeria, Georgia to 